to the Fat Bird Ugly Dog Podcast. I'm your host, Al Frank, coming to you from Central Alberta, Canada. With me today is Kevin Harcourt of Marshall Radio Telemetry. Thanks for agreeing to come on the show, Kevin. It's good to see you again. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's likely that many of the listeners already know you, and I don't doubt that many of them have spoken to you directly. Likewise, it's almost certain that every falconer listening knows, at least, of Marshall Radio Telemetry. And I'd be surprised if those using the brand don't comprise the majority of the people listening. Now, today, we're going to talk briefly about the company, its history, philosophy, and the people involved. In addition, we'll talk about something that's referred to as radio direction-finding technology. That would be VHF and UHF tracking systems. Those are the systems that many of us used when telemetry was first adopted for use in falconry. We'll generally contrast radio direction finding technology with something called GPS or global positioning system technology. And then we're going to jump in and talk in detail about the Marshall radio GPS system. We'll close out the episode discussing several field scenarios that encompass varying degrees of uncertainty, ranging from what I would refer to as a typical straightforward flight where uncertainty is low, culminating in an extended chase where uncertainty is high. Now, before we begin, Kevin, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, certainly. Uh, this is actually my 24th year here at Marshall Radio, uh, formerly a mechanical engineer by training, um, but I've been involved in pretty much every aspect of the business here at Marshall over those 20-plus uh, years, currently head our sales and business development teams. I am not a falconer, but I am an avid outdoorsman. I love hiking, biking, motorcycling, skiing, snowmobiling, and love to do everything there is to do up in the mountains. That's my favorite place to be. Okay. Now, as mentioned, Marshall Radio Telemetry is well-known to most, if not all listeners, but I'm wondering if you could give us a little synopsis of the company's history, the philosophy and the people, and then anything else you want to add to that. Certainly. Well, we were actually founded clear back in 1997. There were three founders of the company at the time. There was uh, Robert Bagley, who's still our uh, CEO and president. We had Terry Roundy, who was a falconer and uh, engineer, and then David Marshall, who was the company's namesake, um, came from the software end of things, and had an MBA. Uh, together, they founded the company in 97. Um, we actually moved 30 miles to the, to the east into uh, Logan, Utah, and then moved down here to uh, Salt Lake City, Utah in 2001. Uh, so we're going on 25-plus uh, years now, building the absolute best tracking equipment on the planet. Those of us who use Marshall Radio Telemetry know 
the product quality. I'm wondering if that's part of the philosophy that you have adopted. It certainly is. Um, we actually have etched in our concrete production floor the motto of no one goes to the lengths we do. And that really is our company ethos. We want to uh, design, build, manufacture, and support the absolute best tracking equipment for the markets we serve for our falconry community, people flying uh, parrots, and our uh, other customers as well. So it, it permeates everything we do. We want the most rugged equipment, the best performance, the most efficiency, um, and it really, really drives us. You've already mentioned your founders, Robert Bagley, Dave Marshall, Terry Roundy. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the other people that are involved in the company. Well, certainly every single person here has an important role. Um, we're just under 50 employees worldwide. We've got our main team headquartered here in Salt Lake City, Utah. Uh, we also have an app development team. We've got uh, sales and support in Europe and in the Middle East. But it takes every single one of those uh, dedicated staff to build and support all of our products that we do and make them successful uh, for our customer. Okay, so why don't you tell us how you came to join the company? Well, that's an interesting story, actually. So uh, back in the late 1990s, I was uh, going to school in mechanical engineering, and uh, the company that uh, I co-founded at the time was doing basically machining and fabrication. So as most people have noticed in holding our products in their hands, we fabricated aluminum precision machines. So I was doing that and started helping doing some of the uh, basically CAD designs and stuff at the time. I was doing that for a couple of years with Marshall and then uh, was offered a position to actually start that machining and our, our CNC machining in-house. So I uh, jumped on board and as they say, the rest is history. been involved in pretty much every aspect of the company over the years. I moved from machining to running our production floor Currently, I manage our, our sales teams and our customer service around the world. It's been a, a fun journey, and I couldn't think of a, a better place to, to devote my life and, and spend every single day coming to work doing really awesome, amazing things and really enjoying it. You mentioned an acronym, CNC, in terms of machining. What's that acronym actually stand for? Well, CNC machining stands for Computer Numerical Control. And it's really how almost all machining and precision fabrication is done these days. So if it was 30, 40, 50 years ago, you'd have uh, some real craftsmen uh, back in the shop and they would be hand turning, you know, cranks and moving parts, uh, manually changing tools and stuff like that. Now, really in the 1980s was the revolution in the machining industry where computer control came in. So you can actually program it. It's called M&G code where you actually put in 3D positions in space, tell the machine, move here, feed at this rate, move out. Our CNC machines, of course, have lots of tools that automatically change in and out. So that's how almost all machining is done these days. So it's, it's kind of funny. Uh, in college, I learned manual machining, but it's kind of a dying art. So all the guys that still do that for a living are really in their 60s or 70s at this point. So CNC machining is, uh, is how everything is made today. It's more efficient, more precise. It still uses those same ways of doing things that were done manually in the past. Now it's just all done by computer. Hmm. Not unusual for uh, computers to be used more and more in any given occupation, job, task, whatever you want to call it. Now, 
in the preamble, I mentioned radio direction finding technology and also mentioned that this is the telemetry that most falconers have typically relied on and, of course, are most familiar with. But could you generally describe for us what it is and how it works, including the various components that make up a radio direction finding system? Certainly. So it's kind of good to start at the beginning with radio and then uh, transition into how radio and radio tracking technology moved into the sport of falconry, which was basically unchanged for thousands of years um, before the 1960s. So radio direction finding is based off of what's called continuous wave or CW signal. And that's just basically an oscillating sinusoidal wave that you turn on or turn off. In radio terminology, that's keying a signal and then letting it turn off and then keying it again, kind of the basis of Morse code. So the, the radio technology actually dates back to the days of Marconi, who was an Italian engineer in the late 1800s. And then Nikola Tesla, of course, uh, was a big proponent of radio technology. That's the foundation of what we use. So moving into the 1950s and 60s, that's when uh, radio direction finding and uh, telemetry technology came into the sport of falconry, replacing bells, which had been kind of the, the only longer distance tracking technology that had existed for the last four or 500 years, you know, starting in Europe there. So uh, some real early uh, founders and, and proponents of adding this new technology, this radio direction finding to the sport of falconry were Bob Berry, uh, coming from the universities and research sphere. So it was really kind of interesting. I wore a backpack, and I'm not talking about the backpack on a bird, but I wore a backpack uh, radio receiver, and that was how big technology was. We had vacuum tubes at the time. Things were really, really big, and then you carried around a very large uh, antenna in your hand, but it was an amazing leap forward. You know, Instead of I could you know, go a few hundred yards and hear the bells uh, while my bird was down and in cover, I could go maybe a mile away with the technology today, and it was a real revolutionary and transformative uh, addition to to uh, the sport of falconry at the time. So let's jump into what the various components are then. So RDF is the shorthand way of saying radio direction finding. We also use the term telemetry interchangeably, but uh, there's a, a few main components. So the first one is you have a transmitter. So this is the device uh, that actually mounts on your bird uses a crystal oscillator, so literally a wafer of, of quartz that is excited with electricity or a, a voltage applied to it to generate RF. RF stands for radio frequency. Um, it goes then through uh, one or more sections of amplification to get that electromagnetic signal out, pushed out over the antenna, and then now you have radio waves propagating through the air. And that brings us to the second piece or second piece of equipment, and that is the receiver or radio direction finding receiver. So this is a device that receives that RF signal from the transmitter, um, and then it has to do something because we, as humans, can't hear radio. So it uh, down converts that into, uh, in our case, an audio tone, and then into a uh, voltage that drives a VU or a signal strength meter. So you can both hear the uh, beeps of the signal and uh, see a deflection of that meter to give you an indication of signal strength. And that fundamental principle of Varying signal strength is basically the foundation of what radio direction finding is. You need a third component here on top of your receiver, and that is a directional antenna. So you have a, uh, a device that you can point in the direction of your signal, and 
because it's a directional antenna. It picks up that signal stronger when you're pointing at it as you rotate to the left or to the right or 180 degrees in reverse. That signal strength goes down because of the properties of that antenna, and you're able to discern the direction to the bird or to the signal source. Interestingly enough, the uh, type of antenna we use is called a Yagi or a Yagi Uda antenna. That was actually developed over 100 years ago now in uh, Japan by a researcher named Uda and his uh, professor Yagi, who actually gets more of the credit, even though he did less of the work. But it provides a really good, compact, directional, very functional antenna system. To just paraphrase that a little, in essence, the system is comprised of a transmitter, a transmitting antenna that radiates an electromagnetic signal, plus a receiving antenna and receiver, which then detect and convert that electromagnetic signal into something that a human can understand. For example, the audible beep or the signal strength meter that's also displayed on most of the receivers that we use. 100%. Couldn't be simpler. Now, for years, Falconers have used VHF, or very high-frequency transmitters and receivers. More recently, UHF, or ultra-high-frequency transmitters and receivers, which have gained prominence. Now, I'm interested to know what the rationale was for Marshall's shift from VHF at 216 megahertz to UHF at 433 megahertz? That's a really good question and one we're often asked. There's a little bit of backstory that goes into it and then some, we'll say, you have to prioritize uh, different things when you're uh, building a product and if I were to put my engineering hat on, it's everything in life is a compromise and you have to pick the best compromise to give you the performance and to optimize a product. So let's start with why VHF to begin with. So VHF, again, very high frequency. This is kind of just general rules of thumb. The lower you go in frequency, the better propagation that radio wave has over the terrain on Earth. So really low frequency signals will bend over objects, which is called diffraction. They'll bend over mountains, things like that a lot better. They'll go through foliage. They'll go through buildings a little bit better. And then there's a, another reason that those lower frequencies were originally chosen. We talked about the, the technology that was available with vacuum tubes and, and crystal oscillators dating back to the 1950s and 60s. It was very difficult to have high-frequency oscillators. So everything really that was practical from a size perspective was done on VHF. Now let's talk about the compromises of that blanket statement that, you know, it's better because it propagates better and things like that. Well, the trade-off is the lower you go in frequency, the longer your antennas get. To give the listeners an extreme example of this, radio waves have a real hard time penetrating salt water. So uh, what does the U.S. Navy do? They have DLF or ULF, which is going the opposite direction, very low frequency or ultra low frequency antennas. And so if you have a submarine and it needs to come up close to the surface to receive some really low data rate uh, transmissions, it has to drag an antenna that might be hundreds of meters long behind it. That would go really far for a bird, but your bird would also never get off the ground because it had an antenna that was hundreds of meters long. So we have to do a trade-off there of what's practical. So for a number of years, really up through the early to mid-2000s, VHF 
It migrated. It started at 150 megahertz, which gives you about an 18-inch long antenna, which is still awfully long on a falconry bird, especially one that's uh, going through cover, you know, going by trees, going under fences, things like that. Uh, antenna wrap was a, a real big issue, especially early on. But there was always a desire to reduce antenna length. So it moved, not a lot in the United States. We still have some UK customers where they used 173 megahertz, similar performance, similar antenna length. Um, but really, the United States and the rest of the world settled on 216 megahertz as kind of that uh, optimal compromise early on. Now, the resonant length of a quarter wave uh, antenna, which is what most talking transmitters are based on, 216 megahertz is 13 and a quarter inches. That's its natural resonant wavelength and the natural length of that antenna um, that should be on your transmitter, which is still a bit long from a practical standpoint there. So early on in uh, Marshall's business, uh, late 1990s, early 2000s, we spent an incredible amount of uh, research, effort, time, money to shorten those antennas. So we got very, very good performance with antennas down to uh, even down to six inches on our PowerMax models of the day, which was a huge achievement to get a short, safe antenna that could still give you really, really good performance. Now, moving forward a few years into the late 2000s, early 2010s, we basically did a company-wide shift to to double our frequency up to the UHF band, which actually stands for 300 megahertz to 3,000 megahertz. But uh, our equipment, most of it now is built on 433, 434 megahertz. And there's a few reasons why that are not intuitively obvious to a a lot of people. So the academic discussion of which frequency is better, well, lower uh, frequencies are better, they propagate longer. What you're actually trying to create, and this is not get too academic, trying to make a dipole antenna. So with a transmitter, you see this wire coming out of one side, and we all intuitively know, hey, that's the antenna, but you need something to push off of. So the example I would give here is if I'm a astronaut and I'm in space, and I need to push off of some mass to get a reaction. I need to push off my spacecraft if I want to move. Well, that very same principle applies to any type of transmitter or receiving antenna for that matter. So in our system with the little small transmitter that goes on the tail of your Falcon, you have the body of the transmitter. And in radio terms, this would be called the counterpoise. So that's that mass, that uh, electrical mass or the electrical surface area of that transmitter is the counterpoise or the opposite of that transmitting antenna. So another analogy there would be the antenna on your car. If you have one that sticks up two or three feet off of the hood of your vehicle, well, the entire rest of the metallic skin of your vehicle is the counterpoise. And that counterpoise should be equally as large. It should be the same, you know, if we're talking 216, 13-inch antenna, I should have a 13-inch ground plane. So, you know, you'd have a 13-inch antenna going towards the head of your bird and a 13-inch antenna going towards the tail of your bird. Now, again, from a practical standpoint, that's very, very difficult to do. In the case of our transmitters, the metal housing becomes that counterpoise. So moving up to the 433 megahertz frequency, the counterpoise or the length, the one inch or so length of your transmitter becomes a lot more efficient. And through that antenna system comprising the actual whip antenna and the body of the transmitter, we're able to much, much, much more efficiently radiate at 433 megahertz. So when we talk about compromises or engineering challenges, we can more efficiently radiate, we can transmit more power, 
and we have naturally shorter antennas, so they don't need a lot of shortening, so we can get as good or better performance in almost every condition using UHF. We can more efficiently radiate more power on the UHF band and have naturally shorter and safer antennas, giving the best overall product for the sport of Falcon. Yeah, the shorter transmitter antenna and more compact Yagi receiver antenna associated with the 433 megahertz frequency was definitely a step up from the 216. Now, a quick aside for you here, two questions. The first one is related to the concept of the counterpoise. You mentioned the antenna on the hood of the truck and the body of the vehicle then acting as the counterpoise. I suspect the same principle applies with the body of the bird. That's a very, very astute observation, Al, because it does. So one of the things that we do best is we spend an inordinate amount of time testing and doing development work. And uh, we take that into account and actually test on real or simulated birds in the exact mounting method that the transporter is designed for, whether that's leg, tail, neck, or back. And yes, the salinity of the body, it would be the electromagnetic reaction of the bird's body to that transmitter and how it affects radiation is actually something that uh, has to be taken into account. And we actually use that to our benefit in this application. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, the second question that made itself apparent to me was something that you have in the AeroVision app itself. And we'll talk about that in a little bit more detail as part of the GPS discussion. But in the app, there is an on-off toggle for sound effects in the settings menu. And when you toggle that on, it produces this beautiful beep, which is very reassuring to those of us who have chased birds over long distances using only VHF or UHF, sometimes for several days before getting a bird back in hand. I'm wondering whether or not that beeping that we hear from our phones is actually the UHF signal itself. That's another great question, Al, and I think you've already answered it there. The development, which was probably the one of the most exciting things to be a part of for my, myself personally here at the company, um, when we developed over 2013, 2014, and into early 2015, we basically brought the GPS uh, into existence. All of us, having worked in the, the radio direction finding world for so long, all of our customers who have used RDF beeping telemetry technology for so long, that beep is hardwired into our synapses at this point. That is, I know where my bird is. I know I have a signal from it. It's a heartwarming, keeps me calm feeling because we've used it for so long. So when we uh, developed the early versions of the AeroVision app, we put that beeping in there as every single time a data packet, and we'll talk about this in more detail in just a moment, when we receive that positional data now from the GPS on the bird, we give an audible beep of, hey, I've got that message, everything's good, to keep that same uh, hardwired Pavlonian response. I'm calm, I have a signal from my bird, everything's good. To answer your question specifically, it is 
a simulation. It's a indication of a received data packet. It is not the actual RDF beep that uh, you need a separate field marshal receiver to uh, receive and to hear. Yeah, excellent. Okay. So now you and I have already mentioned GPS several times. Let's turn our attention to that. So I'd like you to give us a rundown of how GPS technology works in general. At this point, nothing related to its application in falconry. And I'm particularly interested in understanding the difference between the electromagnetic signal that's propagated in the radio direction finding system and the so-called signals that are being propagated by the GPS technology. Okay. We all use GPS technology in our lives in one way or the other for the last 20 years. A lot of us have become extremely reliant on it. Anytime we want to go to a new restaurant for dinner or uh, you know navigate across the country, we're using GPS. Great topic to discuss in a little bit more detail of, of how it works. So, as everybody knows, GPS, uh, it actually stands for Global Positioning System. GPS in there is not satellite, although there are satellites involved in the system. What you have is a constellation of 20-plus active satellites. They're in orbit around the Earth. They're not geostationary. They are actually moving at all times. So you've got an orbiting constellation of satellites that's always you know, around the planet. Um, there's actually more coverage around the equatorial regions, a little bit less up towards the poles. But uh, that constellation of satellites, their position and orbital patterns are known. And each of those satellites is transmitting a continuous data signal that its number one and most important component is time. So it has a very accurate atomic clock synced timing signal that's being sent from the satellite. Then on the ground, the thing needed to track those signals and to calculate its position is called a GPS receiver. For the sake of our discussions internally in our company, we refer to it as a GPS engine because the word receiver gets used for far too many things and that becomes confusing. But you are literally receiving these very, very weak satellite signals from space into your little tiny GPS engine. Now, what does that engine do? Well, it has to hear basically three satellites, three different satellites to know its 2D position on Earth. It needs a fourth satellite to be able to calculate its altitude above the centroid of the Earth. And it does that through correlating the differences in those timing signals. So I know the time from that satellite, that satellite, that satellite, and I have to compare those and then calculate where my position is on Earth. So with that GPS engine and that GPS receiver, it now is aware of its position on Earth, but it doesn't have a way to tell you that unless you're standing there and it's got a screen or something like that. If we geek out for just a second, there's extra information called ephemeris data, which is basically metadata of, you know, my orbit is off by a little bit today for this satellite, or the tropospheric conditions in the atmosphere are slowing down the speed of light slightly, an almanac telling you what satellites are in view at any given time. And that information is transmitted over a several-minute period, interestingly enough. So the longer your, your GPS receiver or GPS engine is running, the more time it has to get this extra information and the more accurate its uh, positional calculations and its, its spatial awareness become. That really is interesting to realize that 
the metadata, so the data about the data, I guess is the way I would say it, includes things like the fact that a satellite's orbit may be off that particular day. And by providing that piece of information, it allows for some correction factor somewhere along the system. Yep, it's a, a fascinating technology that was very foresightfully done, you know, really in the 1980s and 1990s. But it's it's amazing how complex it is to just give you that position right here on Earth. It truly is amazing. But you know, to to paraphrase again, in essence, the satellites are sending messages at the speed of light. And these messages are labeled with an extremely accurate timestamp. That message is then detected by the GPS receiver, also known in martial terms as the GPS engine. And in a falconer's lexicon, we would refer to that as the transmitter. That message is detected some short time later. Then using that speed of light and the difference in the time between when the message was sent and when it was received, the receiver then calculates its distance from the satellite, and then when triangulating among multiple satellites at varying distances, the GPS receiver can actually then determine its three-dimensional position in space. Did I get that right? Yes, and there's actually a uh, little acronym that goes for what you just described, and it's DTOA, or Differential Time of Arrival, and that is the entire mathematical premises on which GPS is based. What we've now done is we've really distinguished clearly between the two technologies in terms of the information that's being received, but the GPS system that you guys have manufactured, in fact, uses those two different systems simultaneously. Having said that, let's talk specifically about the various components of the Marshall GPS technology. The first of which is what we as falconers typically refer to as a transmitter, but now we, we know it's actually a GPS receiver. The second is the pocket link. And the third typically being a smartphone. And on that smartphone runs the AeroVision application, which I suppose we could call a fourth component. But why don't you tell us about each of them individually and then explain how they combine their individual functions to operate as a single system? Okay, let's dive into that. It's funny when you use certain terminology for a number of years. Transmitter for us has always been what you put on the bird, and it had one function, and that was to, again, send out that pulsed CW or pulsed continuous wave signal. And this will be good to take a little moment to clarify what that means um, as we differentiate how data is sent versus how beeping telemetry work. So starting with what we still to this day call a transmitter, it's evolved to be something much, much, much more than that. But, uh, Al, as you said there, there's uh, a few main components that are included in the transmitter now. So the first of which is our GPS engine. We've already discussed how it works, getting the signals from satellites so that it can calculate its position and know where it is on Earth. Now, a transmitter being aware of its location, that's only half of the equation. We have to get that information to the falconer 
So to do that, we take the positional information from the GPS engine and we send that over a UHF radio data transmission. So inside the transmitter, we have a UHF radio transmitter, and that transmitter actually does two things. So it sends that positional information out in one message and uh, CW beeping UHF transmissions that we've used for years in radio direction finding. And in addition to all of that, we include a UHF radio receiver. So why would my transmitter have a receiver in it? And that is because we want to have the ability from within the AeroVision app to control the modes of the transmitter, put it into HD, put it into eco, put it to sleep, and to do all those things remotely. We now have this massively complex little thing that's still, you know, a, a centimeter in diameter that's got a transmitter, a receiver, a redirection finding transmitter, and a GPS engine all combined into one little package. Yeah, I mean, you emphasized the point using metrics of length, i.e. one centimeter, but you could also frame it in the context of mass. So all of that is contained within, you know, something like an 8-gram device. Yep, including a, a battery, which we didn't mention that's on board as well. But yes, very, very tiny. Now you've mentioned that, I can imagine that the battery is, I was going to say, at least 50% of the mass, maybe maybe more. Yeah, that's a, a pretty good round estimate there. And it's, it's kind of funny that uh, to this day, we are still limited on battery technology. I mean, the, the lipo cells that uh, we use and are in everything these days, from your Tesla automobile to your smartphone, the technology really hasn't changed much in the last 20 years or so. So we're still hoping that some you know, great startups out there somewhere is going to come up with a, a more energy-dense, more efficient, even better battery. But that's still the, the limiting factor today is the battery. Okay, so to paraphrase again, you have a GPS engine, which is receiving messages from the satellite. You have a UHF radio transmitter, which we can use as falconers to track down our birds in the event that the GPS system fails for some reason. And you have a UHF radio receiver, which allows us to, on the transmitter, through AeroVision, for example, toggle between modes. Do I have that right? 100%. Right now, let's talk just about the data transmission side of things. So once I have that GPS coordinate inside my transmitter and I've broadcast it out over UHF radio as a data transmission, well, I as the user have to be able to, to receive that. And unfortunately, I can't hear radio and I can't decode it in my brain. So we invented a thing called the pocket link that then receives that data transmission. So the pocket link itself Primarily, it's a UHF receiver, so it's listening for those uh, data transmissions coming in from your transmitter, decodes them, and then it also has a Bluetooth module in there so that it can pair to your smartphone and then uh, convert that radio energy, the data encoded in it, uh, decode that data, send it out over Bluetooth, pair to your phone, running the AeroVision app so that the app then can display that information in a nice, friendly way that the, the user can experience there. We call that UX, our uh, user experience. But uh, put a dot on a map where your bird is and uh, give you a bunch more information that goes along with that. Yeah, okay. So you've mentioned or we've mentioned the AeroVision app. And, of course, 
the real treat that we get to observe are all the various metrics that are available to the falconer. Now, some of those metrics must simply be based on raw data that are collected and then made available by the Marshall system. And other metrics are obviously derived from that raw data. It would seem to me that the various metrics, or data if you prefer, are processed in different components of the Marshall system and then displayed via AeroVision. Can you outline for us which of the metrics are in essence the raw data and which are the derived data? And then tell us in which parts of the Marshall system the various types of data are processed. Certainly. So a lot to unpack there, and it's it's great to, to share with your listeners these different details here because a lot of this is not intuitively obvious, and there's a lot of thought that's gone into this, so it's, it's, it's a, a great thing to share. So let's talk about raw generated data that comes from the transmitter itself. So again, we have that 3D fix, so we have a latitude and longitude on Earth. So that's basically four bytes of latitude and four bytes of longitude, which is just a number, where I am in uh, 2D space, and that allows us to plot the dot of where your transmitter is. We also get speed coming out of our GPS engine and elevation. So that's uh, the term is MSL, means sea level. So that's the elevation above sea level where your transmitter is. We get a uh, real-time measurement of the transmitter's temperature, which in most conditions is the same as ambient temperature. And then we also have a, a fuel gauge inside that transmitter. And the, the transmitter is actually measuring the energy that's being consumed or pulled out of that battery. Like the fuel flow coming out of your gas tank in your car. There is one caveat there is that it always assumes that you started with a full battery. So it's just a good time to remind any of the Marshall users out there, always want to make sure your batteries are fully charged when you put them on that system because it is measuring the, the fuel coming out of the battery, uh, not the battery voltage, which can change with temperature and stuff. So um, that's the information that's uh, contained coming out of the transmitter. Let's just stop there for a moment. I want to emphasize that last point that you made relative to the fuel gauge and the importance of starting with a battery at 100% capacity. The way that the fuel gauge is designed, if I understood that correctly, should I start with a battery that is drawn down 50%, the fuel gauge will actually interpret the battery as fully charged or 100% capacity. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. We've all like to charge our things fully. So most users keep batteries plugged in, micro USB. There's three little indicator LEDs on the battery charger, and that indicates that each battery in the set there is completely charged. Always want to make sure I see solid green LED before I take a battery out and I put it in my transmitter because the system will assume if I put a battery that's been used down 80%, I only have 20% left. When I screw that battery into the transmitter, it's going to go, hey, thank you for installing a nice 100% charged battery. I'm going to start my uh, measurements based on that. So very, very important to always start with a fully charged battery. Yeah. Okay. That is absolutely clear. Now, I interrupted you. You had just finished talking about the raw data that's generated in the GPS engine of the transmitter. Tell us a little bit about the other raw data that's generated elsewhere. Okay. Well, if 
we just used the data that was coming from the transmitter, we could have a really nice dot on the map of where my bird is, but that really is only half of the data that you need. You really need to know where you are and then everything that's relational between where you are and where the bird is. So um, we need some more data here, and we get that from the, the GPS, basically, that's built into your smart device, into your phone. So the phone's got its own same GPS engine. It's calculating its position on Earth, and it knows where it is. So in the Eurovision app, that's the red dot. That comes, that's the Latin lawn that is generated by your phone's GPS. So it's the position of where your phone is. We also get from the phone its altitude. And then uh, a very important thing for, again, relational stuff here is the phone's heading. So as I move my wrist and my phone back and forth, you know, I'm rotating or I'm looking in different directions. So we get all that raw data coming from the phone itself. Okay, and it's then using its location relative to the transmitter on the bird in order to actually generate what we see as an arrow in the AeroVision app. That's exactly correct. So if we were just using raw data and we had nothing derived, at this point with the two data sources, the transmitter and your phone, you'd have the dot of your transmitter on the map and you'd have the red dot, which is your location. But there's so much more useful stuff that can be presented to the user. When I'm out in the field, I want to not only see two things on a map, I'd love to know the distance between myself and my bird. I'd love to know which direction for me the bird is. We drive the data there from the heading I'm looking at to the position on the map where my bird is, and that's how we give you the arrow. We take the 3D positions in space to give you the, the distance between yourself and your bird. Uh, using that same heading and then uh, the Pythagorean theorem, we calculate an angle. And then in addition to this, we're generating all of the total flight metrics. So that's how long did my bird fly? So the total distance covered, what was its max speed? All of this is derived from these two data sources. And all that calculation is actually done right there inside the AeroVision app running on your phone. And it's done so quickly that it appears instantaneous to the user. Exactly. That's the, the beauty of modern processors. All of this can be done. We can generate maps, uh, generate you know high-precision tracks, and do it all in real time. It's an amazing time to be alive. Okay. Now, so we have a pile of information that's coming to us from AeroVision, but additional information can actually be gleaned from other parts of the system, specifically the LED colors on both the transmitter and the pocket link. I'd like to go over each of those colors, starting with the transmitter, and then we can turn to the pocket link. I'm particularly interested in the pocket link color codes because those are available to us during a flight, whereas the color codes on the transmitter are not. And those color codes on the pocket link can actually help the Falcon troubleshoot problems and then make better decisions in the event of an extended tracking session. These are actually great topics to cover. What we find here, and this is just human nature, if everything goes right, you know, you put your transmitter on your bird, you start your system, you get beeps if you have the beeping turned on in your AeroVision app, you fly your bird, you retrieve it, everything's good. You don't pay much attention to the LED colors and the other indications because the AeroVision app tells you, most of the time, it tells you everything that you need to know. But in the real world where things don't always go right, 
um, we forgot to charge our phone, for example, it dies, I have to switch devices or, um, you know, my Bluetooth, I got a call and it interrupted my tracking and I have to go back into the app and now I'm not getting updates. There's extra information that we put on the LEDs, both on the transmitter and on the pocket link that are immensely helpful if you have a little hiccup and you need to figure out what your system is doing. So let's jump into what the transmitter says. So I can operate my system completely by just looking at that blinking LED on the transmitter and know exactly what's going on. When you first turn it on, you're going to get a couple of green flashes really fast. Actually, that just telling you, hey, I'm booting up, everything's good. It's kind of self-test goes on. And then we go into what's called GPS acquisition. When the GPS is acquiring initially, the term we use is amber, but most people look at it as orange. So we're flashing LED orange or amber. And that's just telling you, hey, I don't have a GPS lock currently. I'm not trying to get GPS. So that might take 30 seconds to 90 seconds on average is is initial GPS acquisition. And all the time we're flashing that LED orange. Now blue, blue is our favorite color. It's the color of the transmitter, color we choose to indicate things are working well in the app. Blue means I've acquired GPS and I'm sending new GPS coordinates from the transmitter. Now let's go into a couple of the lesser uh, scene colors. So those green at startup, the orange and blue, that's what you're going to see most of the time on your transmitter. Now, the transmitter, as we talked about earlier in the interview, it's not only transmitting, but it's also receiving. So it's aware of the pocket link, and it knows that there's a pocket link switched on and is in range. And if you are out of range or the pocket link is switched off, I would notice that I'm getting really slow, dim red blinks. And that's really just telling you that the pocket link is, is either switched off or it's out of range of the bird. So if you see that, that's telling you, hey, pocket link's not on or it's not hearing. Them. We have some fast yellow blinks that are visible once in a while. Those fast yellow blinks are just saying, hey, I've received a command message or some information from the pocket link. And a lot of people don't know this, but you can put the transmitter asleep by tapping it with the magnet or by commanding it from within the AeroVision app by pushing and holding and putting it into sleep mode. You'll see about every five or six seconds a, a slow uh, little purple flash that's telling you the transmitter's on, but it's asleep. Then the last one there, and a lot of people may never experience this because they buy a system that's prepared, everything's good. If you want to add a transmitter or change your system data frequency, um, when you command that from the AeroVision app, it will make the transmitter go white, either solid or slowly flashing white, then off, and white, then off. And that's seen during the pairing sequence there. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that things can go wrong in the field and divert the falconer's attention from the task at hand. Now, one of those things that became apparent to me at some point in time, and this is because I use a drone and therefore I'm using the drone-specific app, and of course... I can only look at one of those. I can either look at the AeroVision app or the drone app at any one single time. And the point I'm trying to make here is there is an option for location services that is set as either whilst using the app or alternately always use my location services. And what I found was When I was focused on the app controlling the drone, because I was not using location services always, my AeroVision 
app was now in the background and therefore was not updating in real time. Yes, and this is probably the root cause of a lot of issues with derived data. So to calculate the bird's altitude, the most useful for almost all of our customers is above me. While I'm standing here in the field, I don't care that I'm on the top of a mountain at 9,000 feet or I'm you know near sea level and at zero. I want to see the differential. I want to see where my bird's pitch is above me. So the way that is done is we take the bird's pitch and we subtract off the pitch of the phone, or the altitude of the phone. So in the scenario, Al, that you just described there, with which happens lots of different circumstances here, you get a call coming in, you switch to a different app for a minute, uh, you're flying your drone using your same phone. This is a super important critical setting. It's actually in the system settings on your uh, iOS device or on your Android device. You want to have that location services. So again, that's the technical term comes from Apple of, do I want to give the app that's running access to my location? So there's a couple different ones. There's allow once. So a lot of apps, you know, where are you in the world when you download this app? Is it legal in your uh, jurisdiction there? And it's going to check once. While using, most people think, hey, I only want uh, AeroVision to know where I am while I'm using the app. And in a lot of cases, if you're completely 100% focused, you turn off your phone, you don't allow anyone to call you, you don't open any other apps, and you keep it in the foreground or open the entire time you're using it, then that's a valid setting. But most of us are human, and we want to be able to you know, get a text message, uh, get a phone call if we need to. In your case, Al, switch over and fly your uh, drone from the same phone. And what that does when you have that setting set to, uh, to just while using is it pauses all of that uh, stream of information, all that raw data coming in for positional information into AeroVision. We'll get support calls from this, and it's always funny when you see them on Facebook support groups and things like that. You'll see customers, and they'll have their track turned on, which is a, a setting you can do within AeroVision. And you'll get these long, straight jumps. And customers saying, what the hell's wrong with my system? Hey, I've got this long red line here. I never did that. I was you know, walking in the field the entire time. Yeah, I bet you you didn't have that system setting set to always allow your location services. So it prevents AeroVision from having access to the phone's location while you're out there flying and you have the app backgrounded, and it causes all kinds of unintended consequences where your pitch might go crazy, your location is wrong, the distance is wrong. So it's a super important setting that gives you the absolute best user experiences to always allow that information to be shared with AeroVision. So while you're running it, it can maintain uh, great accuracy there. Okay, good clarification for sure. Now, I took us off on a bit of a tangent, so let's bring it back to the LED colors for the pocket link. And of course, there's two LED displays on the pocket link, a top one and a bottom one. So separate those two out for us. Okay. Well, let's talk about the, the bottom one first, which is simple. So that's basically your charge LED. So if I'm running the system, I've turned it on and, and I'm fully charged, I see nothing. LED is switched off. When your battery gets low, I can see the, the complete charge percentage of my pocket link inside the AeroVision app. But if I glance down and I see, whoa, it started to flash orange, that's telling me, hey, it's time to charge the battery. I'm you know, down 20% or so, and it's time to plug it in. Um, when you do plug it in, uh, that light will change from flashing orange to solid orange, telling you that it's charging. And then, of course, when it's full, the LED color to green, it's solid, and that just tells you, hey, your battery is full. So super simple there on the charge LED. Now, the top LED, there's a, a bit more going on there. 
And again, most of the time, you only see three colors. When you first turn it on, it'll be solid white. That's just in its boot-up phase. And then once it's booted up, it will, we call it breathing. It's the industry term for how you modulate an LED. But it just ramps up and is on, then ramps down and is off, ramps up and is on. It's a slow breathing, and that's basically it's in its search mode. It's listening for signals from your transmitters, and it's not picking them up. So if you're starting out your Falconer experience for the day, you just haven't simply powered up your transmitter yet. If you're in the field and you've been flying for six hours and you're in a long tail chase and you see that, that means your transmitter is most likely out of range and it's not picking up that RF data encoded signal. The pocket link in most cases is designed when it's got a signal, it's going to mirror what your transmitter was doing. So if you have them right next to each other, you'll see the same thing. There. So I will see a blue flash when I have live GPS data coming into my transmitter. I'll see an orange flash if I don't have, we call it fresh GPS data, which means I have it in maybe a lower update mode, or I've got it put to sleep. It will still transmit every now and then to tell you, hey, I'm still here if it's asleep. But amber LED, the orange LED, that's just telling you I'm receiving data, but I don't have fresh GPS. A couple other ones you might see uh, when you turn the pocket link off with the magnet, you're going to see a purple quick flash, and it'll actually beep at you going, telling you that it's uh, being powered down. Um, and then the last one, again, we had talked about uh, pairing when the transmitter is in pairing mode. The pocket link is also in pairing mode. So if you command to add a transmitter, change my data frequency, it's going to go solid white. That's telling you that it's in uh, pairing mode. Those are your colors on your pocket link. So now, obviously, the ones that we as Falconers want to see are primarily the blue flash. That tells us that new GPS data has just arrived. But the other one that's really important as far as I'm concerned is the orange or the amber display. Because what that's telling me is, although I don't have new GPS data as yet for some reason, my pocket link and the transmitter are still connected. And all I have to do is be patient and wait for that new data to come in and the orange flash turned to a blue flash? 100% yes. So you could use this somewhat as a proximity detector. Your phone could be completely dead, and you would know by looking down, do I have a signal from my transmitter, yes or no? If I have a signal, it's either the amber-orange LED or it's blue. So that gives you a huge amount of information of, am I actually picking up uh, transmissions coming from my transmitter? And most people are not focused on what this LED is doing. But again, in the scenarios of troubleshooting, if something's gone wrong, again, you've gotten a call or something like that, you come back into AeroVision and you go, hey, my dot is not updating. My transmitter doesn't seem to be moving. You know, hey, there's something wrong here. Well, the first thing that I would do would be then to look down at my pocket and I go, what color? Exactly. If I see it flashing blue, 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 and I'm not getting any updates, then my app maybe has, has locked up. Maybe the system's killed it. Maybe my Bluetooth on my phone has transitioned over to something else. There's something going on here. So I'll you know, throw away the Apple Force, close it, start it up. That's my first thing I would do for troubleshooting. But that information there is invaluable. Then uh, the scenario that you said, out, I can see amber. You know, maybe my AeroVision app, I can see the dot on the map. It'll be the correct color, but it's not moving. I look down at my pocket link. I go, amber. All right. Um, that tells me that I'm getting data. I'm within range of my bird but the GPS is not updating. So that could be intentional. You could have it in a lower update rate mode. I could have it in the XT, something like that. 
And as you just said, I have to wait you know, five minutes, ten minutes for another GPS update to come in. Or it could be that my bird has flown someplace that is blocking the GPS signal. So they don't happen all that often, but the customers that have had these scenarios where they've had a bird fly into a building, let's say, fly up to a cliff face and get covered so that they don't have a direct view of the sky above them. There's lots of circumstances where they don't happen frequently, but can block GPS. So these are informational pieces that tell me what is going on with my transmitter. So absolutely invaluable in troubleshooting if something is out of the ordinary. Yeah, yeah. Okay, let's now turn our attention to what I would call more practical issues. The first one that comes to mind for me, at least, is battery longevity. Now, I don't think it's not intuitive to anybody to say that battery capacity is limited and that drawdown on that battery is proportional to, at least in the case of the Marshall system, both the quantity and the quality of the data that's being transferred among the various components of the Marshall system. So it's basically a trade-off between data acquisition and drawdown. In other words, more data means more drawdown. But Marshall has given the user a ton of flexibility on how to actually use their own system. So within the context of battery longevity, let's talk about the trade-off and the various modes of use that drive energy consumption. And that's a really great point. It's really the million-dollar question that customers always ask. Well, how long does the system last or how long does my battery last in my transmitter? And uh, unfortunately, the answer is it depends. Um, there's always a trade-off between battery consumption, your GPS update rate, and then also this is one thing that's not intuitively obvious, but how easy is it for that transmitter to get its satellite lock and to maintain a lot of different variables that go into this. And there is a relationship to battery life, and the faster you get GPS updates and higher update modes versus slowing it down, but that relation is not linear in nature. Had a lot of customers ask, well, you know, I get a once a second update in Eco. If I went every five seconds, then maybe I could get five times the battery life. And unfortunately, that is not the case. There's very little difference between a one second update and a five second update, for example. AeroVision 4 was the first of our systems that allowed two way control of the transmitter there. And now in AeroVision 5, the user has the ability to select those different modes. And they're tailored to really some specific use cases. We can get into those in a minute. But we've got basically four user-selectable modes, HD, Eco, or Economy, EXT, which means extended, or sleep mode. Um, then we also have a couple automatic modes that I think would be great to describe to our users to describe what turbo mode is and what reserve mode is. So let's jump into that. HD mode, high definition. That gives over 57,000 fixes every hour. So you have a maximum number of points. The GPS is firing on all cylinders. It's using all of the correlators inside. It's running at its maximum speed. It's getting the maximum number of fixes, and it's doing the most computations per second to give you the most accurate data possible. You're a computer geek. You've overclocked your system. It's running really, really fast. Fans are on, all that kind of stuff. So it's using a lot of energy, but that's what is going to give you the most accurate metrics that are possible. It's going to be nice, smooth tracks on your AeroVision app. And it's very, very useful as a, a training tool. If I want to compare flights from one day to the next, I'm training my bird, I'm exercising him, flying him to the drone. Uh, do I want to see you know, his speed improving, his total distance improving? 
HD is the mode that you want to do to give you the most accurate uh, statistics there, but it uses the most battery. So a trade-off there. Let me interrupt you there. You talked about the number of GPS fixes per hour being 57,000. So one of the little exercises that I did was take my AeroVision flight. I exported it into Google Earth. And by doing that, I was able to access every one of the individual fixes and the associated attributes that are linked to each of those fixes. The flight lasted eight minutes, so just shy of 500 seconds. And the total number of fixes in that eight minutes was greater than 7,200. When it's HD, high definition, you truly are high definition. Yes, and it's funny you mentioned uh, Google Earth because it's it's an amazing tool to look at things in 3D, to manipulate them, to access the raw data. You can do a lot with it. But just speaking on the number of points there, you start getting a flight that's 30 minutes, 45 minutes, an hour. You get those 30, 40, 50,000 points and you render them in Google Earth. You can run that even on a really fast computer and it just, you try and rotate that around and it just slows things down. There's a massive amount of data that's being calculated and sent over the air when you're in HD mode. It's, it's amazing that it works like that. It's, it's truly amazing. So I took you off on a little bit of a tangent there, Kevin. You had just finished describing HD mode. Why don't you Why don't you go on to the next mode for us? So the next mode uh, would be eco or economy. And in comparison, if we're talking number of fixes or number of positions uh, per hour, HD has fifty seven thousand. Eco has thirty six hundred. It's getting one position every single second. Um, so much much less. And uh, in engineering terms, it it correlates to about 50% less, so it's, that would be almost 10, 12 to 1 um, in number of positions, but it doesn't, unfortunately, it's not 100% linear, but we get basically twice the efficiency or we use half as much battery um, when we're in that uh, economy mode. So it's designed more for, I'll say, hunting, tracking, or recovery. So I want to maintain a positional awareness where my bird is, not doing a lot with those metrics, but I want to know kind of, you know, is he over there, is he over here? It's also a really great mode for our short-wing customers, so people that may be out for an hour, you know, walking around in the field looking for jackrabbits, um, you can have it in eco and not have to worry about managing the battery there, so it's a really good functional one, but not what you want to choose if you're interested in those accurate Then the next mode is the EXT mode, uh, or extended. Now, this is where you, you start wanting to go into extended mode if you're doing, let's say, non-traditional things. If I'm doing a tame hack and I want to see every 15 minutes where my bird is, but uh, she's going to be out all day long, extended mode is perfect for that. Um, it's also perfect for um, longer tail chases. If something's gone wrong and I need to extend my battery life, extended mode is the uh, exact mode that you want there so you can slow down those GPS update rates um, we actually, in the GPS engine, we shut it down. It's not running. It goes to sleep for a while at whatever interval you sent it to or set it to, and then uh, it will power itself back up, get a new fix, go back to sleep. That's what is going on in extended mode when you select that. The last mode that we have is sleep mode. It's designed for some very specific scenarios, actually. We always caution customers, only do this when your bird is in your control. So let's say I get all of my hawking equipment operational. I'm out in the field. I'm looking for a slip. 
I can keep that transmitter powered down in sleep mode and have it still be touch of a button, be able to go back into a live tracking state, HD or, or eco, that would be a great use of, of sleep. So those are your, your main modes that you can control. Now let's switch over and talk about the automatic modes or the modes that uh, you, know, you will experience, but you, you can control to some degree, but they happen automatically. Well, that brings us to the end of the first episode of Season 2 of the Fat Bird Ugly Dog Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed the episode, that you learned something new, and that you'll tune into Part 2 of our discussion. We'll pick up where we left off and begin talking about the two automatic modes that users do not have direct control over, those being Turbo Mode and Reserve Mode.